0: Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children, children of all, all ages, I'll <laughs> bring you to you. you. Mormonism.
1: Mormonism.
2: Shut, shut up and send them down. down, down. down, down.
3: That was me. That was me clapping. Bill, that was fantastic. What a great new intro you put together.
4: Radio Free Mormon, welcome to another episode of Mormonism Live. We're on number 41, is it? I think it's 42. 42. Man, um, I'm showing 41, but maybe it is 42. I don't know. It
3: is 41. You're right. Never mind.
4: So there we are. It is, as you always like to point out, the date is September 15th,
3: the day after my birthday. Happy birthday, birthday, by the way. And it's Happy 2021 birthday. for those of you in the future. To me. I think we should all sing right now together. Happy uh, birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. I'll imagine everybody else singing along. Happy birthday, dear Bill Real. Happy birthday to you and many more. Da da da. So
4: you've got tonight's episode. Uh, people are already saying they love the new intro. So that's awesome. And uh, I'm excited. Tonight, we are going to help the brethren out. The brethren have been struggling. You're going to point out the struggle that's been happening and, and where they've arrived. And, and then you're going to offer some advice. And I'm going to maybe help with a couple of clarifying uh, insights. And, uh, and we're going to put a good episode together, my friends. So you are t- You're, you're the
3: glue that holds this whole thing together, Bill. It's
4: Elmer's glue. <laughs> my mom my mom used to just mix flour and water together, and we would use that as homemade paste for our art projects when I was a kid. So yes. we didn't get the Elmer's glue for 99 cents or whatever.
3: <laughs> well, that was very, very smart of her. Yeah, she was good. She was very practical. Yes. So are you ready to go? You ready to rock and roll, Bill? You're on, my friend. It's all you. Okay, well, thank you. Well, tonight's episode is titled Solving the LDS Church Homosexuality Issue. Because believe it or not, Bill, some people think that all we do is carp and criticize about the leaders of the church. And, you know, certainly we do some of that. I hope it's constructive criticism. Uh, But but I don't think it's completely true. And tonight what we're going to do is almost exclusively, I think, if not exclusively, we are going to be constructive, give answers and solutions to a certain problem. That the leaders of the church have managed to get themselves into. And it has to do with the LDS church's position on homosexuality and gay marriage. Mm-hmm. So let me talk to you about what the nature of the issue and the problem is. I think everybody probably knows that, but it's good to go back over it because this is where the church is now. Where the church is now is not where the church has always been. Last week, we talked about that 1981 manual titled homosexuality that went out to all the leadership of the church. Things have changed in the church since then. Back then, homosexuality itself was a sin. Not doing homosexual things, but just being a homosexual. God wouldn't even think about creating those people. No, he wouldn't. Because why would a loving heavenly father do that to his children, right? So to quote uh, Boyd K. Packer and indeed he's reflecting the old view of the church from 1981 because we talked about this a little bit last week but the whole thing was theologized. It wasn't about science it was about theology and it started with the idea that homosexuality is a sin so they're sort of starting with their conclusion but (laughs) they're starting with homosexuality is a sin therefore God would not punish you for something that was not a choice, right? You have to have a choice and make a bad choice in order to be punished by a just and loving and fair deity. Therefore, because homosexuality is a sin, it has to be a choice. So that was 40 years ago and probably some vestiges of it remain, but The leadership of the church has tried to move past that, tried to catch up a little bit with society and with the science on the issue to the point where today they don't say that being homosexual is a sin. It's okay to be homosexual as long as you don't act like a homosexual.
4: Yeah. And they also argue that it can't be cured. Today's, so that back then they said if, if someone wanted to repent of it, they could get cured. Today's theology, very statements from the church, uh, make mention that it may be just one of the things that we deal with in this human life.
3: Right. And I think that's sort of implicit in that idea is that it's not going to be cured in this life, but God can cure it in the next life. Mm. I don't know that it's ever specifically stated, but I think it's really implicit in the whole thing. So that's the situation that the church has now. Now we get to gay marriage, which since 2015 has been ruled to be constitutional throughout the United States. So up to that point, the LDS church had basically sort of farmed out its theology on the law of chastity to the government to decide who could get legally and lawfully married. You may recall that phrase even occurred in the temple endowment. That as long as you were legally and lawfully married, the sexual relations were okay within that marriage, not outside. We all understand that. But within that marriage. But here comes the government now and upends everything for the church. And it says gay people can get married. Therefore, they can enter into a legal and lawful marriage. And the church headquarters uh, goes to DEFCON 1 over this. And this was in the summer of 2015. Well, only a short time later in November of 2015, the leaders of the church have got together and in reaction to that, they instituted the policy of exclusion, which I think we all know about, saying that to be in a gay marriage, if you're in a gay marriage, you are in apostasy and you need to be excommunicated from the church. They reversed that of course, three and a half years later. At least to some extent. So what we're dealing with is that um, the church has stayed out of the bedroom for heterosexual people, by and large. I mean, I know back in the 70s they came out against oral sex. By the way, I hope no children are listening. (laughs) Maybe I should have a warning. If there's any little kids in the room, go ahead, put them to bed or something or put on the TV and let them watch Disney. But they said oral sex couldn't do that. But that didn't last very long. That was kind of revoked pretty shortly thereafter. They also had this thing about birth control. Birth control was bad, too. You remember that, Bill? Bill, are you there? Are you? Um, oh, sorry.
4: Yeah. The uh, When I joined the church back in 96, I think, 97, um, birth control as was an absolute no-no.
3: Right. And that's even after, I think, they had taken it back. And that's one of the problems. Once you put it out there and you sort of silently take it back, then everybody who heard you put it out there still thinks it's in effect. So there may still be Mormons out there who think that uh, birth control is a no, no, probably not as many now in 2021, but by and large, with those exceptions, by and large in 2021, the church stays out of the bedroom for heterosexual couples, but for homosexual couples, not so. So we get to this point. I've talked about the policy of exclusion. Excuse me. I'm looking at my outline. Um, So we know that the nature of the problem that the LDS church has today is that it is okay to be gay in the LDS church. You just can't act on it, even if you get legally and lawfully married. In fact, just getting legally and lawfully married as a gay person is enough to get you excommunicated. This has caused a great deal of difficulty among members and almost certainly among some church leaders. And this was reflected in Elder Holland's comments that he made recently at BYU. And we have a quote here. This is a talk that Elder Holland gave. It was given on Monday, August 23rd, 2021, speaking to the BYU staff. And this is part of it that doesn't deal with muskets. We're not going to talk about muskets today, but we're going to talk about how it is that Elder Holland expresses the dilemma that he feels he's in. And I I think he's being quite honest here. He feels he's in a dilemma and in a theological bind as far as the doctrine of the church as to what it is that they can and cannot grant to gay members. And basically, he's saying, we've gone about as far as we can go. Do you have that quote there? Uh,
4: Yeah, let me uh, put it up on the screen.
3: It's from uh, timestamp 22.53, and it goes to 24.03, so it's about a minute and maybe 10 seconds.
0: We hope it isn't a surprise to you that your trustees are not deaf or blind to the feelings that swirl around marriage and the whole same-sex topic on campus and a lot of other topics. I and many of my brethren have spent more time and shed more tears on this subject than we could ever adequately convey to you this morning or any morning. We have spent hours discussing what the doctrine of the church can and cannot provide the individuals and families struggling over this difficult issue. So it's with a little scar tissue of our own that we are trying to avoid and hope all will try to avoid language and symbols and situations that are more divisive than unifying at the time we want to show love for all of God's children.
3: There you go. So you can see that he's expressing this dilemma he's in. They've gone about as far as they can go. And I keep quoting that line from Oklahoma. But that's what he's trying to say. I think it was probably poor form on his part. And I would have advised against him if he had asked me for my input to probably not play the victim card here. And not try and say, you know, we got scar tissue of our own because we've spent hours. I mean, hours, Bill, uh, talking about this, not praying about this, by the way. Notice he never says we've been praying about this or asking God what to do. But he and some of the brethren, at least, have been talking about it and shedding all these tears. So they've got scar tissue of their own. So he kind of wants to sort of create this victimhood for himself, which he tacitly equates to the victimization that has been felt by uh, LGBTQ members of the church. So I would have told him to avoid that. That really isn't the the part of tonight's show that I want to focus on. But before I go any further, did you have anything you wanted to say about this quote, Bill?
4: Just uh, really quickly, the the idea that these guys just all sit in a room and cry, wham, wham, you know, they, they're just bawling their eyes out. And the reality is they claim to be prophet seers, and revelators. And last time I, I checked, What that means in Mormonism is that they can get revelation from Jesus himself. So they've tried. They've talked about how things could fit, what they could do. They've cried a bunch. But nobody's ever asked Jesus to come in a room. And more importantly, it seems apparent he isn't.
3: Yeah, it does seem that way. And, you know, it does occur to me that in some sense, really, all they're doing is acting like Jesus within the Mormon framework. Once again, this is a tangent I'm not going to go off on. But within Mormonism, it really seems that Jesus is a guy who's in charge and he has all this power and he could do things if he wanted to, but he doesn't do things. Instead, all he does is feel bad for you and he feels your pain, right? That's really what Jesus is. He's like the Bill Clinton in the deity. He feels your pain, but he's not really going to do a whole lot about it.
4: And because he's always 40 years late, because if we accept that Jesus does talk to the church. And the church is always forty years late on every social issue. What it tells me is that Jesus cares a whole lot more about two-hour church or combining elders and high priests than he does about individual people and their lives and the trauma that's imposed on them through every social issue that the church is behind on.
3: Very good point. And earrings, all the and the name of the church,
4: oh, yeah, all earrings. these
3: things, all these things, he's extremely concerned about, but not things that actually impact. I mean, hugely and negatively impact many members of the church and their families and their friends, et cetera. So I think we all know this is a very, very serious thing. But apparently, he's just too busy with other things. Now, of course, the the brethren being 20 or 40 years late on every issue, that's also following Jesus because he's 2,000 years late on his second coming.
4: (laughs) Uh, I didn't have that in the outline, did I?
3: No, I wasn't ready. No, that one just came to me. But anyway, uh, honestly, trying to be helpful here. And I know that members of the uh, SEMC, the um, what is that called? The Strengthening Church Members Committee do monitor this program regularly. And I hope, seriously, Elder Dykes, I hope that you will take some of these ideas. You don't have to have Elder Holland or anybody listen to the podcast. Okay, that would be great, too, by the way. And donations from. Uh, him would be accepted as well as from anybody else. But if you could take these ideas and maybe run them past Elder Holland, because I think that what we're going to do tonight could be helpful to them. Elder Holland may be too close to the problem. So close that he can't really see the solutions to the problem because there are multiple solutions to this problem. There's not just one. I've got four solutions to this problem. I'm not a prophet. I'm not a seer. I'm not a revelator. But I can come up with four workaround solutions to this problem. And that's what we're going to talk about tonight. Are you going Sorry. to be
4: giving out Elder Dyke's phone number again?
3: No. No, oh, remember when gosh. you gave it
4: don't you remember that? You gave out the number for the strengthening church members committee.
3: Yeah. And, you're right.
4: And people flooded their phone lines for about 48
3: hours. That poor secretary. I feel bad for her. I feel bad for her because suddenly she's telling people who are calling in, you know, like the same day that I talked to Elder Dykes. Oh, well, he's not here now. He's like gone on a long vacation and we don't know when he's coming back. So please stop calling. Yeah, that was great. That was fun. That was good theater. But this is serious. This is serious, Bill. Okay, so let's keep it serious. All right. Solution number one. Now, solution number one, I want to preface this by saying this is something that I may have heard before. But where this came up was like a week ago. And I'm talking to my fiance, who is a never Mormon. She's never been a Mormon in her life. She's a Lutheran, right? But um, having me in her life, she ends up sort of knowing more about Mormonism than most lifelong Mormons. And I brought up this quote from Elder Holland and I told her about this talk and the, the jam that the brethren feel that they're in. And she pops right off with, well, you know, you've got the celestial kingdom, yeah? Well, why don't you just let the gays go into a a lower level of the celestial kingdom? And I go, that's a great idea. Let's put this as number one. So this is the first solution. Okay. In other words, Mormons, the Mormon church, the Mormon leadership can embrace gay members who are married without running afoul of their other doctrines. Mm -hmm. And that's the whole point here within the structure that the LDS church has set up for itself, how can we make gay marriage something that the church can accept, promote, and embrace, even up to and including in the temple, <clears throat> okay? So she says, let give them a lower level in the celestial kingdom. No must, no fuss, it's an easy workaround. Now, of course, it's not doesn't make gay people completely equal, right? Because they're in a lower level. They're not if they're in the top level with the 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 straight people, okay, with multiple wives. <laughs> they're not that, They're in the, the top level of the celestial kingdom with the heterodox uh, version of marriage that Mormons believe in. They're in a the second level with the heterodox version of marriage that Mormons don't believe in.
4: Which is, you know, even polygamy is not a traditional form of marriage, right? This idea of marriage has always been between one man and one woman.
3: Yes, right. And it's unchanging, by the way. That's what they say. It's unchanging.
4: And I want to pop in here for just a moment. Put this up on the screen. Um, let, let me flow. So just so people are aware, we all know there's three kingdoms, the celestial, the terrestrial, and the celestial. But in D&C section 131, verse 1, in the celestial glory, there are three heavens or degrees. Now... Uh, as you and I were talking off the air before we started, there is some disagreement about what that scripture means. There is an argument that when D&C 131 says, in the celestial glory, it's basically saying, in the heavens, and then there are three heavens or degrees. And uh, there was an article in By Common Consent. Notice who the author is there, uh, RFM?
3: I do notice that. You're highlighting it even. It looks like Shannon Flynn. Who's Shane
4: that? Flynn. That was the guy that was connected to Mark Hoffman, who was on the documentary, uh, if I'm not mistaken, I think um, uh, Mormon Stories or somebody else was attempting to do an interview with him that ended up ending ending abruptly. But um, <clears throat> I know that uh, this argument that maybe there really isn't three degrees in the celestial kingdom, maybe they're talking just about heaven in general, but the trouble is that LDS Theology, this is on the thechurchofjesuschrist.org, this is their gospel topics, Kingdoms of Glory, from another revelation, it's about maybe a quarter of the way down the page, from another revelation to the prophet Joseph, we learn that there are three degrees within the celestial kingdom. So regardless of the argument about whether we're interpreting it right or not, it is LDS theology that the celestial kingdom, the top kingdom of the three, has three tiers within it.
3: Very good. Yeah, so regardless of that debate, which is ongoing, and uh, perhaps— not susceptible to an easy resolution. The critical point is that the church does hold its position doctrinally as the highest kingdom is divided into three levels. So celestial kingdom has three levels in it. That's what we're working with. And that's what elder Holland and the other members of the leadership of the church believe. So you can still have, um, a second tier within or even the third tier, but second tier is closer. So let's say second tier of the celestial kingdom, be able to be, uh, inhabited by people who are in a gay marriage. So once again, where I was at, I think, was that um, it doesn't make them completely evil, evil, (laughs) equal. It doesn't make them completely equal, but it does permit their exaltation and provides a way for them to be completely accepted as fully gay individuals, married gay individuals within the church. So long as they abide by the law of chastity regarding not having sex with anyone other than your spouse to whom you are legally and lawfully wed. Okay, now, once again, about this caste or caste system that it sort of creates, it's not it's not a perfect solution, but it is a solution that allows for gay marriage to be accepted within the church here in this life.
4: Yeah, All and, right. they go, and they can go so far as to allow them to even marry in the temple for time only, for, per se.
3: Exactly. Yeah. Or, or for eternity, because they're going to be married up there in that second level of the celestial mm. kingdom. So I'm saying that this actually is a workaround not just to accepting gay couples in the church who have been civilly married, but who have been married in the temple for Okay. Would they get the TK smoothie? I don't even know. Okay. I have no idea if they would. Um, they might need more than a TK smoothie to keep them from enjoying each other in the celestial kingdom. I don't know, but let's not go there. But it's a, it's a very interesting question. I must say, I'm still trying. I'm still trying to be serious here, Bill. And you're trying to make me laugh. I'm I'm trying to be a little bit of humor and a very serious solution. And humor is always a good thing, I think. But it puts them in a lower rung of the celestial kingdom. However it still may be possible, theoretically, for them to advance to the top level. Why? Because we we don't really know about advancement between levels in the celestial kingdom. The church has certainly made pronouncements that there is no progress between the kingdoms themselves, but there is no such pronouncement, of which I'm aware, about progress between levels of the same kingdom so that's solution number one. No must, no fuss. You can have that for the price of admission. Elder Holland. And can Salut-
4: I one other little thing, just a FYI 1960, Please, Sidney B. Speary in his Doctrine and Covenants compendium. He said, Nevertheless, we must bear in mind that the Lord has not revealed to us or made it possible to deduce many of the situations that may relegate a man into the second heaven. Or degree in the celestial war- world much less those who may relegate him to the last or third heaven. In other words, we know nothing about those other two tiers and hence we could we can fit anybody into those tiers that we want to.
3: Absolutely, it's got a vacancy sign hanging out. Theologically yeah. speaking, we could put anybody in there and this is this is crying out for it. I mean, it's like it's a huge gift that the LDS church believes that there's three levels in the celestial kingdom. And the only theology they have relates to the the first level. Mm -hmm. Okay. So that's a great, great quote. By the way, that segues nicely into the next solution. Um, TK Smoothie, Logan Tatum is saying, I don't know for sure who coined the term the TK Smoothie. I'm not sure exactly who did either, but it comes from doctrine that was taught by Joseph Smith. He didn't say the TK Smoothie, but yeah. Oh, my gosh. Okay, so this goes to solution number two. Remember, there's four solutions here. Solution number two, we don't know. Now, elements of this sort of overlap into the other solutions, but it's a very, very handy place to go. And the church goes there frequently with other issues. The the church really, when you stop and think about it, the fact that this is the restored church, which claims to have all the revelation. And when I grew up in the church, basically it had the answers to all the questions. That's what we were taught. That's what I believed growing up. But if you pay attention in general conference, like I try to do, what I hear over and over is prophets, seers, and revelators talking about how much they don't know. Basically what they know is just the correlated curriculum of the church. The very basics, the primary level. Anything else, they don't know. And they say it quite frequently. Let me give you a couple of examples, okay? Blacks and the priesthood. It used to be that the church had the answers as to why blacks could not have the priesthood. It was either uh, the curse of Cain or some kind of malfeasance in the Premortal existence and there was a debate there a hot debate about what was that malfeasance and some people said there were fence sitters and other people said no there was no fence sitters in the war in heaven. So they must have done something wrong. I don't know exactly what it was, but it must have been something bad. That was Joseph Ealing Smith's position, by the way. So uh, we used to know the answer to why they didn't have the priesthood now that times have sort of caught up with the church culture has changed things have advanced and now the church disavows those teachings right but in their place they don't have another answer their answer is we don't know we don't know why god prohibited blacks from having the priesthood or black men and women from going to the temple but it was god who was behind it we just don't know the answer and we need to be satisfied with we don't know so this is an example of how the church goes from knowing an answer Progress occurs, which kind of refutes the answers that they knew. So they get rid of those answers because they're no longer viable. And then they slip into the I don't know mode. And it's not just blacks in the priesthood. I mean, I suppose we could have a whole podcast on this. We're not going to have a whole podcast on this tonight, but we could talk about the location where the Book of Mormon took place. The church used to know where the location of the Book of Mormon was and it was all of North and South America. And the narrow neck is down there at the isthmus. try and say that three times fast, of Panama. And Camora was actually the linchpin of the geography along with that narrow neck and the land North and the land South. But Camorra was a linchpin because that was the place that was in Joseph Smith's backyard, so to speak, not far from his house. And it's also identified in the Book of Mormon as a location in Nephite geography and also in Jaredite geography under a different name. So that was very, very uh, concretely held and taught. And that's what I learned uh, becoming a member of the church when I was 18 in 1978. Well, now things have sort of changed on that. Science has caught up. The archaeology is not looking good for that, right? And so what, I'm sorry, were you, did you sneeze or something, Bill? What was no, that? No, I'm
4: just laughing at that. And I want to say <laughs> something else really quick, which is, okay. this is a church that is led by prophets, seers, and revelators. Now, let me ask you a question. Hmm. As time goes on, does Mormonism know more or less about how all
3: these things work? Oh, uh, is that a less sign? <laughs> less, I'm trying, I'm trying to put up a less sign less. here for the camera. I don't led know if that's a less prophets, sign or that's seers, a less
4: sign. and here. revelators, it knows less and less as time goes on.
3: Yes, well, prophets and seers and revelators aren't what they used to be. Apparently,
4: no. no. Moses would certainly be shaking his head.
3: Oh my gosh! Yes. So here we go, uh, and and the church now that science has caught up with that and things aren't really panning out. And there's a number of reasons for that, and we won't go into them here. Okay. I mean, one of which would be there's like no evidence whatsoever that there was a massive battle fought on the hill Cumorah, which is not big enough to hold the number of people that it's the Book of Mormon says we're we're on it. Uh, as far as the fights go, uh, so it's problematic. So what happens then when science catches up with this is now they change the introduction to the Book of Mormon and they and they said, we don't know. The church takes no position now on where the events in the Book of Mormon took place, except for the fact that it was somewhere in North or South America, but we don't know. And we're all aware of that, right? That's the church's position today. So that's another example of going from, we know we've got answers to, we don't know when science catches up. Third one was, I mean, my gosh, when I joined the church in 1978, we actually used to know who the Lamanites were and they were everywhere. You know, they were absolutely everywhere. They're everywhere in North America, they're in South America for crying out loud, they're way out in Polynesia. We got Lamanites everywhere. But unfortunately this whole thing called DNA happened. And it turns out that over time, uh, DNA has shown more and more conclusively that really there aren't any Native Americans that are descendants from the Middle East. There's no Middle East DNA in the Native American uh, population, at least. And I'll be specific here because they did a podcast with Simon Southerton on this and he would never forgive me if I didn't clarify this. Any Middle Eastern DNA that is present probably came over With or after Columbus. So it would not have been present in Book of Mormon times. Is that part clear? Mm
5: -hmm.
3: Okay. So there's none there. So because of that, now the church suddenly stops knowing the answer. We don't know who the Lamanites are. Uh, They're somewhere, but we don't know who they are. And so now we've got a Book of Mormon, which is written expressly to the Lamanites and the church that promotes the Book of Mormon scripture doesn't even know who the Lamanites are anymore. So that's that's a third example of the church going from knowing answers to going to I don't know. So my point here is that this is not something that the church has no experience with. It's not like this would be a novel idea. The church has been doing this in category after category. And what I'm suggesting here in solution number two, under I don't know, or we don't know, the church doesn't know, is that nothing more is this the case about I don't know than the status of eternal relationships in the hereafter. So the church knows that if a man and a woman or a man and a woman and a woman are sealed in the temple by the priesthood authority of God, that they can be married in the celestial kingdom. Forever, right? That's the easy part. After that, everything starts breaking down because life is never that easy and relationships are never that easy. There are complications that get thrown in. And Elder Oaks talked about this in General Conference back in October of 2019. And he gives a couple of examples of this at the opening of his talk. His talk is titled Trust in the Lord, which is code as you will hear when he speaks. It's code for we don't know. Trust in the Lord means we don't know. We don't have the answer. Do you have that um, that talk? It's at the You're very in- beginning. The first yeah,
4: starts, starts at zero, right?
3: Yes, and I'll be interrupting you and in a couple places to ask you to stop. Please.
1: My dear brothers and sisters, a letter I received some time ago introduces the subject of my talk the writer was contemplating a temple marriage to a man whose eternal companion had died. She would be a second wife. She asked this question. Would she be able to have her own house in the next life, or would she have to live with her husband and his first wife? I just told her to trust the Lord.
3: Can you stop right there? Okay, that's the first example. This is where things start getting messy. And by the way, I know that he's using an example which is trivial and almost ridiculous and almost designed to evoke the laughter that it does evoke, but these things are far from trivial and he'll go into another example here where he will suggest the same answer. Notice that when he says, trust in the Lord, what he's saying is, heck if I know, I don't know the answer. We don't this know seems, the answer.
4: This seems to be a pattern. I think we'd also have
0: to be honest. There may be some of these questions that there is no answer to.
3: Yet. Oh, brilliant. But I think be the ones we avoid. <laughs> that was a brilliant audio clip at that point, Bill. Color me impressed. All right, should we continue? Yes, absolutely. Here we go.
1: I continue with an experience I heard from a trusted associate, which I share with his permission. After the death of a beloved wife and mother of his children, a father remarried. Some grown children strongly objected to the remarriage and sought the counsel of a close relative who was a respected Church leader. After hearing the reasons for their objections, which focused on conditions and relationships in the spirit world, or in the kingdoms of glory that follow the final judgment, this leader said, quote, you are worried about the wrong things. You should be worried about whether you will get to those places. Concentrate on that. If you get there, all of it will be more wonderful than you can imagine.
3: Can we stop there? I think he just said, end of quote. So here's another example. And all he's saying is we don't know. We don't know what's going to happen in the celestial kingdom with these relationships. All right. Once it starts getting anything other than the simple black and white, easy doctrine that the church has, you start encountering the messiness of humanity and the messiness of human relationships. All of a sudden, it starts hitting the fan. And we have two examples of we don't know. We don't know. Now he's actually going to go to a third example, which is the subject of his talk, believe it or not. I'm not sure why it is that when he's giving a talk about the spirit world, he wants to start off with these two examples. But now he's going to talk about the spirit world and you will notice what happens. And this happens over and over again in general conference. And when I hear leaders speak, is that all that they know is the accepted and received doctrine of the church. Anything beyond it, they don't know. His whole talk is going to be about the spirit world. And he's going to introduce now this main subject of his talk by saying, we don't know anywhere near as much as we think we know about the spirit world. And this is an apostle who's talking, the guy who's supposed to know stuff by revelation. Can you play this?
4: I bet Bruce R. McConkie and uh, Joseph Fielding Smith knew the answer to these questions.
3: Oh, I'll bet they did. Yes, they did. What a comforting
1: teaching. Trust the Lord. There it is. From letters I've received, I know that others are troubled by questions about the spirit world we will inhabit after we die and before we are resurrected. Some assume that the spirit world will continue many of the temporal circumstances and issues we experience in this mortal life. What do we really know about conditions in the spirit world? I believe a BYU religion professor's article on this subject had it right. He wrote, when we ask ourselves what we know about the spirit world from the standard works, the answer is not as much as we often think.
3: There you go, okay. So here we have the spectacle of a seer and revelator quoting an academic For the proposition, with which he agrees, by the way, that we don't know Bupkis about the spirit world.
4: No, we don't know a whole lot about anything. And we know less and less as time goes on.
3: Yes. And somebody just made a very rude comment about um, uh, about Elder Oaks and his appearance. And I try not to make comments about people's appearance. I will say that every time he's on the screen and I see him talking, I keep looking around for Beaker.
4: Yeah, it, it does
3: look or those guys up in the stage, right? Yes, exactly. (laughs) <laughs> Beaker running around in the background, gibbering incessantly. So we've got this situation now where I think I've established pretty well that the church has no problem. In fact, it's got a habit now, an increasing habit of saying, I don't know when they run into questions that that perplex them, that don't fit into the neatly boxed categories that are provided by the correlated curriculum. So why don't we just apply this to homosexuality? and gay marriage. If you're gonna say you don't know about uh, priesthood ban, if you don't know about location of the Book of Mormon, if you don't know about who the heck the Lamanites are, if you don't know about what's gonna happen in the spirit world, um, or nowhere near as much as what um, we usually think we know, why not just apply that to the homosexual issue and the gay marriage issue? Yeah. That's my question. Why not just say, we just don't know. And it would be perfectly legitimate to say that because there is little to nothing written about this subject in the standard works. In other words, it's kind of a blank slate. This is a lot of cultural baggage being brought in to the current uh, position of the church on the issue, because they're still going from this idea that uh, practicing homosexuals, even within the bonds of legal and lawful marriage is sinful. Okay, yeah, you're not going to find anything about that in the scriptures as far as I can tell. so um, Can I add something here? Yeah, please do.
4: Yeah, so talking about this solution, there are, you know, within Mormon theology, again, I'm not claiming these are actual historical facts, but rather that Mormonism would claim these are facts. Right. These There are things we do know. One of the things we know is that Michael and Jehovah, two men working together, came down and created the planet Earth and all the life there on it. So two dudes working together, can not only create a substance of planet they can also create the very life that inhabits it right it is it isn't it them that breathes the life uh, breathe the breath of life jesus himself into adam and gives him breath and and they're down there creating the beast and fowls and the shrubbery and all the other things that we get told in the temple and by the way the church's website verifies that that is also lds theology not just something we see in the temple film that is we're just misinterpreting or it's given for just uh, allegory or something. And then we also know that, um, Elohim and Jesus, two men ushered in the restoration. We know that Peter, James, and John, three men restored the higher priesthood.
3: Um,
4: And and I want to show one little thing here. This idea that homosexuality is this oddity. Let me put this up on the screen and I'll be really quick. I won't stick with this long because I think it's just a tangent. Um, But if you look here, homosexual behavior in animals, like it's not this. We do know that this is a normal occurrence in the world. Uh, It lists all of them here, but we can go down here to where the animals are. Uh, All right. So we've got the bird family. It talks about all the statistical occurrences of homosexuality in the bird family. Here's the mammals, dolphins, American bison, bats. Um bottlenose dolphin dolphins, elephants, giraffes, mar- marmots or marmots or marmots, uh, lions, polka- <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and then the bonobos, which science says is, you know, super closely related to us. The bonobos, the gorillas, uh, the Japanese macaws, the orangutans, monkeys, uh, sheep, uh, spotted hyenas, lizards, reptiles, you know, insects. In other words, we used to hold this position. It was a choice, and it's this weird thing. And you guys ought to knock it off. And the reality is, it is found all throughout nature in the animal kingdom.
3: Right, and I think that what used to be said, maybe still is, is that it's unnatural.
4: Yeah, it's it's as natural as the sun coming up at each day.
3: Yeah. So uh, the idea it's unnatural. We don't find it anywhere in nature. That's what makes it unnatural, right?
4: right. It's everywhere.
3: But actually, it is in nature, in all those different examples that you just shared, and that makes it natural yeah, by definition.
4: Yeah, which is the point that's prompted these men to backtrack from every claim they've made about this issue, and there's one little table leg left, which is the actual act of homosexual uh, intimacy that they just can't get past, but they've been wrong about everything else on this issue, everything. And it's the last table leg and they just don't want to kick it out.
3: Yeah. And what I'm suggesting is that what we do with what we can do. Solution number two, what we can do with gay marriage in the church is we can do with it. The same thing that we do with other unusual marriage relationships. Okay. We can just perform them. Say, we don't know what the outcome will be, but to trust in the Lord to make it right, to do the right thing in the eternities. Okay, we can do that. And by the way, isn't this what we do with work for the dead in the temples all the time? When a guy has gone through his life and say, you know, he's been married to say three different women sequentially, right? He's not a Mormon, we're doing work for the dead. And he's got three wives. Well, what do we do? Well, we seal him to each of his wives and leave it up to God to sort it out. Yeah, And my suggestion is, why don't we just do the same thing with gay folks? They can be sealed in the temple and we can trust in the Lord to sort it out in the hereafter.
4: Yeah, look how many sealings are done in the temple on old family history work that we've sealed the wrong people to the wrong people. And they're married to five different people, even though they were only married once in their life. We We're, we're doing it all over the place, RFM.
3: Yeah, absolutely. And so this is a second solution. It's completely viable to do it. And the church has got lots of practice in doing it in other areas. And even in this area, when we're talking about marriages in the hereafter, let's go ahead and let's just do it for gay marriages as well. It's the same thing, just applied in a different context. It takes care of the problem completely. I recommend it to you highly, Elder Holland. All right. You ready for solution number three? Bring it on. Okay. Okay. Now, here we go to the point where we need to examine our underlying thesis. In other words, we have certain conclusions that they're drawing. The conclusion that Elder Holland is drawing is that we've gone as far as we can go doctrinally and given everything we can. Let's go back to those underlying assumptions that make this the limit of as far as they can go, because that will actually be very helpful. The nature of the problem, the leaders think the problem is insoluble or at least elder Holland said he does, but that is because the church has come to the point where it bases the entire plan of exaltation on the heterosexual sex act. That's the whole problem. That's why they're painted into this corner. It's because they believe that the whole purpose of the exaltation is to have spirit children through the heterosexual sex act act, right? pumping out those spirit babies to populate future planets. That's what makes somebody into a God and a goddess. That's what makes them exalted is the ability to do that. And that's why this is all linked in. And this is why elder Holland and the other leaders feel that they've given as much as they can, because under that idea, well, you can't have gay people becoming gods because they can't have children and you have to have children in order to be gods, okay? That's why they're in this conundrum. So let's go back and examine this. There's nothing first off in the scriptures that says this. There's nothing in the scriptures that says that spirit children are created through heterosexual sex. Now it's come to be assumed that in fact, it's come to be assumed so strongly that it has become part of the warp and woof of the doctrine of the LDS church. This is the doctrine that elder Holland's talking about that the doctrine of the church cannot go any further in extending equality in the church to gay members. So that's the doctrine, but there's nothing in the scriptures that says this, there's nothing that Joseph Smith taught that says this in fact, and this is important, the idea that spirit children are created by heterosexual sex among exalted male and female beings is actually contradicted by Joseph Smith. And it's not something he said in 1829. It's not something he said in the book of Mormon or someplace else. It's actually one of the last sermons that he ever gave in his life. It's from the King Follett discourse, which was given April 7th, 1844. He will be um, dead in two months time in June. The following June. So two and a half months before his death. So when I say that, what I'm saying is this represents his most advanced, most developed ideas on the subject about how spirits come into being. Okay. And before I get to that, I do want to say something else and hopefully this will be humorous. Um, I think everybody who even thinks about this concept separate and apart from what the scriptures say or what Joseph Smith said or didn't say. I think everybody thinks about this and thinks about, okay, we're going to have heterosexual sex and we're going to populate a world. How many people are alive on this earth right now, Bill? Uh, what is it? 7 billion. It's a lot. I think it is. And if we, if we go back in time and figure out how many people have lived before the people who are allowed alive now, let's just make it, let's be conservative and say another 7 billion. Okay. So you got 14 billion people, that's 14 billion spirits, all of which have to be created through the heterosexual sex act. Are you kidding me? That doesn't make any sense at all. And I think that anybody who stops and thinks about it, who's a member of the church, at least this is what I did. I would try not to think about it because it became uncomfortable, but it's just totally unbelievable. It's unworkable. Do you remember Rita Rudner? She was a stand-up comedian a number of years ago. Is she on SNL, Saturday Night Live? I don't know if she was. She might have been on there. Uh, I'm not positive, but uh, she had one bit that she did when she was talking about a friend of hers who had her first pregnancy and delivery. And she was in delivery. She was in labor for 36 hours. And Rita Rudner says, 36 hours. Can you imagine? I don't want to do something that feels good for 36 hours.
4: Yeah. Yeah. You know, we talk about like sex is the thing we all, for the most part, most of us, again, not everyone, most of us enjoy the most. It's the thing we think about all the time. And the reality is none of us want to do that for more than, you know, whatever, whatever short amount of time in a day you're doing it. Um,
3: Nobody wants to do that 24 hours or 10 hours a day or four or five hours a day. No, I mean, geez. Yeah. So that, so when you think about that, and you try it and I would try and go through all sorts of permutations and saying, well, maybe the gestation period of a spirit is not as long like nine months for a baby. But honestly, even if it's one day, there's a gestation period of one day for a spirit baby. Okay. What's one day times 7 billion. Yeah. It's a freaking long time. And that's okay.
4: all the LDS women have to look forward to.
3: That's it. That's all they are is breed mares. Yeah. So, and and that makes it unattractive of course, uh, especially unattractive from the woman's point of view. So this is something that's unworkable. And I think we all recognize that just uh, as a practical matter. But now when we go back to the, um, the King Follett discourse and what I'm using here is Stan Larson's amalgamated text. It was printed in BYU studies in 1978. That's the year I joined the church. And this, what this takes the four different versions of the King Follett discourse it was written down by four different scribes as Joseph Smith gave it. There are certain problems with it. Some recorded something that somebody didn't. Anyway, he puts together an amalgamated version using all four of them. And this is what it says. I'm going to quote a few parts from it. Okay. Because here is what Joseph Smith says about how spirits are created. And by the way, this is one of the most radical parts of his sermon, which he gives at the end of his life. And the big secret is this. Joseph Smith says, regarding how spirits are created, that they're not. Spirits are not created, according to Joseph Smith in his final teachings on the subject. And here's one of the things he said, and this will sound familiar to those of you who are uh, acquainted with this sermon. Is it logical, he said, is it logical to say that a spirit is immortal and yet have a beginning? Remember this? Because if a spirit of man had a beginning, it will have an end, but it does not have a beginning or end. This is good logic and is illustrated by my ring, my precious. I take my ring from my finger and liken it unto the mind of man, the immortal spirit, because it has no beginning or end. Suppose you cut it in two, as the Lord lives, there would be a beginning and an end, so it is with man. Then he goes on to say, God never had the power to create the spirit of man at all. Can we stop for a second on that sentence? Yeah. God never had the power to create the spirit of man at all. Isn't he omnipotent? No,
4: no, no, not in Joseph
3: Smith's theology.
4: At least not this part of Joseph Smith's theology. There are other parts of Joseph Smith's theology that say that heavenly father did create all of us. Correct.
3: Yeah. And I think that's probably the earlier, but he created, uh, well, he didn't create anything. He can't create spirit. Spirit is also matter. It's more refined, right? Yeah. But matters eternal in Joseph Smith's theology. It cannot be created. It can be reorganized but it cannot be created because if it can be created, it can be ended. And especially is this important with the spirit of man and woman? He goes on to say later, God himself, this is a wonderful expression that he has because this is where this is the ultimate beginning that he goes back to as far as God and spirits. And it's not God having a wife and having sex and having baby spirits, by the way, another problem with that that many people have thought of, Why is it that an exalted resurrected man and an exalted resurrected woman, both of whom have physical bodies, immortal physical bodies have sex and then have a spirit baby. What's wrong with that picture? That doesn't make, yeah, that doesn't make any sense because like proceeds from like we learn in the scriptures. That's not like proceeding from like that's two giraffes having sex and giving birth to a kangaroo. (laughs) Very true. So that's another one of those conceptual problems with the current doctrine of the church. So here's what um, Joseph Smith says as far back as he can go, God himself found himself in the midst of spirits and glory. That's as far back as he goes. Because he, God, because God was greater, he saw proper to institute laws whereby the rest all those other spirits who were less in intelligence could have a privilege to advance like himself and be exalted with him. So that's as far back as it goes because God must find himself in the midst of spirits because the spirits have already existed. There's no time you could go back far enough to not have spirits and not have God existing at the same time, according to Joseph Smith's last word on the subject.
4: It and, also seems interesting too, right? There's the idea, the the cliche in Mormonism that as God is, man once or or uh, as man is, God once was, as God is, man may become, and as you've already pointed out, tons of things that we no longer know. President Hinckley said, uh, "I don't know that we no longer. I don't think we teach that anymore." Something along those lines. Yes. So it's another another piece that's been retracted, and Mormonism again had better answers in 1980 than it sure as hell has in 2021.
3: You're right. That's another great example of moving to we know to, we don't know. Yeah. Great example. Um, And then he, after saying this, talking about the fact that spirits are eternal, God doesn't have the power to create them. He says this famous line. This is not speculation that he's presenting. He presents it as doctrine and truth. And here's what he says. This is good doctrine. It tastes good. You say honey is sweet. And so do I. I can also taste the spirit and principles of eternal life. And so can you. I know it is good. And that when I tell you of these words of eternal life that are given to me by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and the revelations of Jesus Christ, you are bound to receive them as sweet. You taste them and I know you believe them. So so this isn't stuff he's just uh, talking about. He's saying this is the revelations of Jesus Christ and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And this is true doctrine. This is the last word on this aspect of doctrine that Joseph Smith gave to the church. And it wasn't until after his death that all of a sudden it starts becoming developed into this idea about God and having wife or wives and having sex and having spirit babies. All right. So that was Joseph Smith's final word on the subject. Okay. That's not the only place he talks about it though. It's also in scripture. It's in the book of Abraham for crying out loud, which came out a couple years before that. That's when it was published chapter three in March of 1842. Here's what we have in Abraham chapter three, verse 18. And you know this too. Uh, He just got done talking about, what was it? About all the different stars. One star being above another star remember? Mm-hmm. And then the highest stars Kolob. Well, then he likens it. He segues in the middle of the chapter and likens it unto spirits and does the same kind of analysis with spirits. So it starts off with saying, how be it that he God made the greater star as also if there be two spirits and one shall be more intelligent than the other. Yet these two spirits, the one, and the one who's more intelligent, right? notwithstanding one is more intelligent than the other have no beginning. They existed before they shall have no end. They shall exist after for they are, they are no laum, or eternal. So we have this doctrine being put in scripture in the book of Abraham in 1842. It's the same doctrine that Joseph Smith is teaching two years later in the King Follett discourse. So it isn't just a one-off. It appears in different places, including in scripture, that is canonized and accepted by the leaders of the church today. Okay. By the way, I can't go into all the different questions that this might raise, but I will say that intelligence, if you'll notice how it's used here, intelligence is not an early, more primitive form of spirit, as Joseph Smith uses it. That's a later development. All right. Intelligence is used to describe the relative state of progression of any individual spirit. I'm going to say that once again, Okay, intelligence is not an early, more primitive form of spirit, as is commonly taught today. Intelligence is used by Joseph Smith is used to describe the relative state of progression of a spirit. Like what he says, one is more intelligent than the other. Right. Or in Doctrine and Covenant, Section 130, which was given in 1843 verses 18 and 19, where he says, and you'll remember this, whatever principle of intelligence we attain unto in this life, it will rise with us in the resurrection. And if a person gains more knowledge and intelligence in this life through his diligence and obedience than another, he will have so much the advantage in the world to come. So intelligence is used by Joseph Smith, not to talk about some sort of primordial form of spirit, but it is used to talk about the capacity of any individual or any individual spirit, whether it's a greater intelligence or a lesser intelligence of one being. Okay. Mm. Any, any comments about that?
4: No, no, no. I think you're making a great point here.
3: Okay. So if we go back to Joseph Smith, as, as I've been saying, we can say as he did that spirits are eternal. This is where we've got to change the underlying foundation of the current doctrine of the church, but we do it by going back to the founder of the church and the one who is looked to and revered as the prophet of the restoration. We have to go back and examine those underlying preconceptions, which are wrong in this regard, at least as far as Joseph Smith taught. So we can say that spirits are eternal. There is no creation about them. Therefore spirits are not created by the heterosexual act of divine exalted beings. In fact, they are not created in any way whatsoever is what Joseph Smith taught. So spirits don't need to be created because they cannot be created. God did not have the power to create our spirits and we have no power to create other spirits in the celestial kingdom. Once you get back to Joseph Smith, you don't need to worry about gay people being married in the temple because they can't have spirit children. In the celestial kingdom. Remember, that's the whole nub of the problem that they're facing. You don't have to worry about that. Why? Because nobody can create spirits in the celestial kingdom, whether they're heterosexual or whether they're gay. It doesn't make any difference. So if, if we go. You get- point out,
4: um, out a major contradiction, which is that we need LDS theology is that we're going to get exalted. And again, it's out there. We're going to populate our own planet, which we don't get anymore. But then, as you're pointing out, the reality is all the spirits that have ever been already are.
3: Yes. Yeah. They have existed forever. It's mind-blowing. It's, uh, it's, it's radical. But it also takes care of this problem. If the leaders of the church would just go back to Joseph Smith and get rid of the accretions that have accumulated on his teaching, and the contradictions to his teaching that, uh, that have been adopted by the church as doctrine, Okay. So let me see here. There's a fourth thing. Yeah. I think I've concluded that part. So now we get to number four. Okay. This is basically what I covered back in Radio Free Mormon episode number eight. So this is a long time ago. This is about, um, wow, it's about five years ago, almost five years ago that I did this. And What I did with the amazing contradicting Joseph Smith is I, first off the basis of it is to show seven different concrete areas with facts and figures as to where it is that Joseph Smith contradicted himself on different uh, principles and different doctrines. All right. But it's not a slam job on Joseph Smith because the way I started out is I say, you know, there's a difference between science and religion. And typically, Religion's strength is that its doctrine never changes. That's what gives it force. That's what gives it uh, the sense of uh, solidity, of durability, of unchangeableness. You can rely on something that doesn't change. And that's the attractiveness in a religion of having doctrine that doesn't change. The weakness of that is that if you never change your doctrine and it's not susceptible to change, then you have made it so you're not open to being able to keep up with new information and new knowledge that comes about as society and technology and culture advances. So there's a strength there and there's a weakness. The strength of science is that it is open to changing based upon new information and new understanding and new data. Of course, the weakness of science is that if you could call it a weakness is that you can't depend on it to be forever the same, right? But that's the strength. So the strength of science is that it's open to change and the strength of religion is that it's not open to change. And then the question becomes, okay, so which one is better at responding to new information and adapting itself to new information and becoming more closely approximating reality and the truth? And the answer to that is always going to have to be science. And that's why whenever there's a conflict between science and religion, there's going to be this for a while. But eventually it's going to be religion that has to yield the field to science. And that's what we see historically with uh, probably every religion. But the Catholic Church, certainly there's the incident with Galileo. And we've given several different examples just within the Mormon Church of the same thing. Did you have something you wanted to say there, Bill?
4: I was just putting a cough drop in, but I, I would at least <laughs> note that, you know, we're already to the point where the church is right on the fence of acknowledging maybe there was no global flood or that, uh, you know, Adam and Eve and the garden story is, uh, is an allegory or some type of uh, fictional story told to teach something but not really based in reality. We're, we're right there. The apologists have already got there. And the church is just kind of clinging on. So these things are constantly being renegotiated. And as you point out, it's not science is always changing based on new science. Religion has never come in and suggested something to science and science went, oh, yeah, you guys were right. But science does disprove old you know, new science disproves old science and new science disproves religion in um, faith system beliefs. And it's never the other way around.
3: Yes, Exactly. So we've got a situation where uh, what I'm suggesting now is that Joseph Smith has set the example for leaders of the church today, which is he saw no problem with contradicting himself and overturning his former teachings when he received new inspiration, new knowledge, new revelation, new understanding. And he does it over and over and over again. I mean, he has like a 15 year prophetic ministry from 1829 when he dictates the Book of Mormon to 1844 when he dies. So really, it's a 15 year prophetic ministry that Joseph Smith has. That's not a long time, but his theology is characterized by uh, its radicalness, its openness, its expansiveness, its growth, because he is always open to contradicting what he had believed before, even when what he believed before was set forth in writing. And even when it's set forth in scripture that Joseph Smith himself produced. So if you want to find out what those seven examples are, I encourage you to go back and listen to that episode eight, the amazing contradicting Joseph Smith. But what I suggest in my conclusion to that episode, which we're going to play here. And I actually get the chance to listen to my own voice who a dream come true. um, Is that, the leaders of the church today could follow Joseph Smith's example and simply change the doctrine in spite of the fact that it contradicts what they have said yesterday. They have that power and it's not just that they have the power. It's that in doing so they're actually following the example set by their founding prophet. Now, this is about a four minute, uh, conclusion that I give. And I hope I haven't already rehearsed it here, but do you have that? I do, here we go. You can actually see RFM sound waves here. Oh, cool. any lessons that we can learn from Joseph Smith's approach to doctrine from the fact that he was willing to contradict himself multiple times in order to accommodate new information that he was receiving? I think that there are a few. First, the LDS Church has left behind Joseph Smith's view of contradicting himself in order to incorporate new information. The LDS Church, instead, is much more Protestant in its view and has adopted the view that once something is doctrine, it always has to remain doctrine. It cannot change because that is a sign of the truth of the doctrine. It's first important to realize that is not how Joseph Smith viewed things. Whether you agree with him or not in this matter, it is clear that the founding prophet of the LDS Church saw doctrine as something that was only provisional, in the words of William James, something that was only temporary, and something that was susceptible to being overturned and changed in the light of receiving new information that contradicted it. In this way, the LDS Church has really become the Mormon brand of Protestantism. Could the church today learn anything from Joseph Smith's attitude about doctrine? I will suggest that the church, yes, could learn from this attitude. The church today has a number of issues that confront it. Women in the priesthood, recognition of gay marriage to name only two. And what the church could learn today from Joseph Smith's attitude is that the church is completely free to overturn itself on issues such as women in the priesthood and gay marriage. The church today could announce that it has received new revelation that says that women can receive the priesthood. In doing so, they would not be out of line with Joseph Smith. Instead, they would be following in his footsteps. They would be addressing doctrine as something that is completely changeable and susceptible to being contradicted and overturned based upon receiving new information and new revelation. I am not saying that the church should do this. That's up to the church to do. What I would like the church to understand is that they are not hogtied to the past, that they are not required to continue to teach something as doctrine just because it is something that they have taught as doctrine before. In the same way, the church could change today on its issue of gay marriage. They could say, we will recognize gay marriage and that people can be in gay marriages and be fully faithful and accepted members of the lds church the church does not do that because it is stuck in this rut of continuing to do things today just because it is the way the church has always done it they are going to maintain this doctrine into the future just because it's the way they did it in the past if they change the doctrine from the past then they feel that they will lose their religious authority as prophets of god but if they learn the lesson from joseph smith a true prophet if joseph smith was a true prophet and nobody has to believe that more than the current leadership of the lds church if joseph smith was a true prophet then the prophets today are at complete liberty to overturn anything and everything they've taught in the past as doctrine in order to accommodate and make room for further light and knowledge in conclusion then this is why i am suggesting that joseph smith's teachings were so expansive that they were growing that they were alive and vibrant and this is why it is that the current church's teachings are so restrictive and limited. Joseph Smith's ideas were expansive because he was willing to contradict himself. The church's teachings today are restrictive and limited because the church is not willing to contradict itself. The church today is root bound in its doctrine. Joseph Smith in his day was anything but root bound in his presentation of doctrine. And so ironically, the church Joseph Smith founded has ended up becoming the exact same type of church Joseph Smith came to overthrow. And if Joseph Smith were to come back again today, it is unlikely Joseph Smith would even recognize the religion that he founded. Okay. So there was a lot of duplication there, but what I think is interesting about that is not just the wonder of hearing my own voice, but also the fact that this was back from when was it? I put this thing up. This was, um, I think it was March of 2017. Yeah, I think it was March of 2017, and I'm uh, presenting this as an option to leaders of the church. You know, I wanted to put it here again because it fits and because what we have here now are four different ways, four different methods, four different solutions that the church can use to get itself out of the fix it's in with the homosexual issue that it can. The doctrine of the church actually can give more to gay members of the church than Elder Holland currently realizes. I think, I mean, frankly, look, look at the policy of exclusion bill. We're at the point where in the church we have people who will believe that the leaders are prophets, seers and revelators, and will sustain them as such. Even when in November of 2015, they claim to see, receive a revelation from God, the policy of exclusion by revelation, according to the president of the church. Now president Nelson and three and a half years later, it's reversed by revelation. If members of the church will accept that, and not everyone did, but the ones who are still active apparently did, if they will accept that, then they will accept this. If they will accept a a reversal of a revelation in three and a half years' time, they can definitely. The leaders of the church can definitely overturn, and the membership will accept them overturning something that was not given by revelation after a much longer period than just three and a half years. Now. Do you have anything you want to say about that before I conclude? Um, Just
4: that, as you're pointing out, like there's nothing stopping these guys from making a change. It sounds so much like elder Holland doubts that there is a viable solution that can solve this problem beyond what they've already come up with. But as you and I both well know, doubt your doubts, doubt your doubts. There (laughs) are solutions out there. There are answers. There are ways to put this together and to, for these guys to say they cried in a room and Jesus never showed up and they don't know what to do and they've got their own scar tissue uh, is ridiculous because here you uh, laid out four beautiful solutions that they could use any one of these or all of them together for, for heaven's sake.
3: Absolutely. And it doesn't, it's not going to cause a lot of heartburn for the church. In fact, it would be a definite plus. So in conclusion and recap, number one solution, have gay married couples inhabit a lower level in the celestial kingdom. They can still be married in the temple for time and eternity. Two, seal them in the temple and let God sort them out. In other words, that's the we don't know uh, solution, right? We've used it in so many other aspects of the church. What's one more number three, get back to Joseph Smith's original teachings on the eternal nature of the spirits. They are eternal. They don't get created. God himself could not create them is what Joseph Smith said. They're not created by uh, the heterosexual sex act. We can look at it and know practically speaking, it's unworkable. It makes no sense. It's actually kind of ridiculous when you stop to think about it. And Joseph Smith taught something different. Joseph Smith taught spirits are eternal. Go back to Joseph Smith. It solves the problem. And number four, you could follow Joseph Smith's example of contradicting and overturning and overruling yourself when new light and knowledge comes. In fact, I thought that was one of the principles of Mormonism. It's even enshrined in the temple endowment with Adam seeking further light and knowledge. Well, if you seek further light and knowledge and it comes, then a lot of times you're going to have to let go of old things in order to embrace the further light and knowledge we're doing, what is taught in the church, what is taught by Joseph Smith. And it's an easy fix. The church had, the church leaders have the power and we know that the membership will accept. In fact, they'll cheer it, but we know they'll accept it because they've just accepted a revelation being overturned in three and a half years time. They're ready for it. They will do it. All we need is leadership on the issue. I recognize, Elder Holland, that this is difficult for you to see because you're so close to it. I'm maybe a little bit more removed. My view is different. But here are four solutions for you. Any one of them will work to fix the problem. I recommend them to you heartily. That's the end of the episode.
4: Amen. Love it, love it. And I want to play one little quote here. I played this for you before the show started from Marky Peterson. You know, we talk about what is the harm? What is the harm in the message that we currently give? And, uh, and I'll play this here.
0: The leaders of our church have said that they would rather see their children dead and in their graves clean than to have them live an unclean life. How do you see someone in their graves? Virtue is more important to you than your life. Protect it above your life. If the time ever comes when you must choose between the two, then sacrifice your life, but under no circumstance,
4: sacrifice your virtue. That is an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ recommending suicide. He said, if you can't keep clean, which none of us, how many of us are clean, RFM?
3: Not many of us, but I have been pronounced uh, clean from the blood and sins of this generation. Go ahead.
4: (laughs) Good old second anointing saves you once again. There is an elect group. None of us are clean. That's what the scriptures tell us. And Marky Peterson is advising any who cannot stay clean to take their own life rather than have lost their virtue. Um, It's about time that LDS leaders stand up and acknowledge all the bad teachings in the past, all the things we've gotten wrong, and just acknowledge, look, let's just be honest. Jesus isn't in the room. We're just 15 old guys trying to figure it out, and we've got egos, and and we're bothered by, you know, the shame or embarrassment that comes from having to admit our, we're wrong. Uh, I remember this this one here. Uh, let's see here. Oh, I may not have that one. Sorry. Oh, no apologies.
5: In the past, the, the church has had harsh tones, at least, to to the discussion surrounding LGBT rights. Um, In a Tribune story that we published on Tuesday, Elder Oaks, you were quoted as saying that the church doesn't seek apologies and we don't give them. And of course, this sparked a a whole storm on social media about those who who wonder how this view comports with Christian theology. Uh, Again, wanted to give you an opportunity to respond to that.
4: I'm not aware that the word apology appears anywhere in the scriptures. So it's about time we start apologizing. And these guys have gotten not just a couple things wrong. If we're honest, go read um, This Is My Doctrine by Charlie Harrell. They've they've changed everything. They've gotten all of it wrong. And now we're supposed to believe, again, back to the last week's episode, we're supposed to believe on September 15, 2021, it's all, it's all worked out now. Now it's all good. Now this is the truth. And, and the reality is 10 years from now, this will be way off too. So it's time these guys uh, do the right thing and start to acknowledge that they get a lot of serious stuff wrong and pretty much all of it.
3: Yeah. And I could uh, recommend a, a variation on that line to elder Oaks. That was elder Oaks and not Darth Vader, right? That
4: was elder Oaks, but he okay. was under the weather for that. So. Oh, that's right. I'm his sorry. His beautiful voice was a little uh, tempered in that, that audio.
3: Right. He could also say that he's not aware that the word homosexuality occurs anytime in the scriptures.
4: Yeah. And Elder Bednar says there are no homosexuals in the church.
3: Right. Oh my gosh. (laughs) The, the, The links that they will go to in order to try and get around this issue. Let's just address the issue. I think it was Thoreau who said for every hundred men are hacking at the leaves of a problem. There's one striking at the root. Any one of these four solutions goes right to the root. It takes care of the problem. You're off the hook, gentlemen. You are still within the doctrine of the church and you can make room for gay marriage and embrace gay people fully and equally as heterosexual members of the church.
4: And then they would have to acknowledge sadly that they do have blood on their hands.
3: Well, I don't know. Do they have to, I mean, well, they
4: wouldn't. Uh, I mean, they wouldn't, but that would be the connection is how could we, how could we, these 15 men who talk directly to Jesus Christ himself have gone decades and decades and really centuries with having the wrong view that caused people to feel so much shame and um, guilt that they, that some of them went to the extreme degree of taking their own lives.
3: Yeah. Uh, I mean, uh, right now they haven't changed and they don't accept responsibility for any blood that might be on their hands. So I don't know why that would change if they did adopt one of these solutions. Um, I also I, I hear what you're saying, and I think that's something that someone had commented on. I just it's problematic to me to look at it that way, because what it ends up being is a barrier to the positive change that we would hope for. Uh, If, if, if necessarily they have to admit bloods on their hand because they change and that's a reason for them not to change. And then there's more blood. So hopefully we could get an end to this. It doesn't make it better, but it's certainly better to put an end to it than to have it continue in the future. I think.
4: What is the, what is the quote that um, good, good, what is the good men that are wrong either can choose once they're informed and, and, have better information to either be right or to not be good, right?
3: I think that uh, the the version that that reminds me of <laughs> is that if an honest man, it could be a person. Yeah. This is somewhat of an old quote. uh, If an when an honest man finds out he's mistaken, he can either cease to be mistaken or he can cease to be honest.
4: Yeah, and we can kind of see which path these guys take, right? Yeah. So um, should we take some phone calls? Oh, let's let's do it. I'll put the banner up. Uh, folks, you should have this on speed dial. There's no reason on your Android or uh, Apple telephone, your Apple uh, cell phone that you don't have Mormonism live in your contacts. Uh, you should be you should have us there so that you could call us every Wednesday night and in your Venmo phone. account and your Venmo account. Yes. And social security number would be great. <laughs> be here. Oh, that's not it. Well, that is it. Let me get the comment out of the way.
3: It's 435, right? Are you going to go to the phone number bill? I waiting for 200
4: 3478 or what is it RFM?
3: 435 200
4: fist fist. And so now we'll uh, we'll take a couple phone calls. Um it is amazing, isn't it? Like here we are 2021 and we have as as a faith, we have reversed so much and simply moved on from old beliefs and held new ones that completely contradict those old ones. You've laid out a bunch of them tonight. And yet there's some apprehension on these top 15 men from simply acknowledging that that actually happened. True. That we changed that much, that they really don't have a clue and they're wrong about almost everything. Yes. Caller number one, you are on Mormonism live. What's your name? Oh, no. <laughs>
2: Well, I, Give me I, anything. This is Jay again. I was Jay. caller number one last week.
4: Yeah, well, Jay, you're number one again this week. Number one in the hearts of our listeners and viewers. Uh, you are on Mormonism Live with Radio Free Mormon and Bill Real. What do you think about the four solutions that RFM has offered tonight?
2: Uh, I think they're great solutions. I wanted to say uh, in reference to the word virtue, to me that to, is always tied in with sexuality I want to I want to make the argument that I believe that Jeffrey Holland, and Dallin Oaks, David Bednar, and some of the others, to me, have lost their their, their virtue,
5: um, and that's all I want to say.
3: I, yeah, I appreciate that. Thank you. Does he have some sort of inside knowledge he wants to share with us? Well, do, do you know this? Do you know the church took
4: out of its young women's manuals the scripture from the Book of Mormon? that where the priest uh, took away the virtue of. um,
3: Well, the Lamanites Lamanites took away the virtue of the. One second caller, okay. Uh, The Nephites took away the virtue of the Lamanite prisoners there at the end of the
4: history. It's another thing that's gone away is there is this kind of subtle acknowledgement that that scripture isn't healthy and it isn't appropriate and it's not true. You can't take someone's virtue by raping them, but that's what the scripture in the Book of Mormon is suggesting, and the church has again pulled that away. So at the very least, from the caller's comment, a recognition that something else has been removed.
3: Very good. Yeah, it's sort of like a Victorian idea that got incorporated somehow into the Book of Mormon. Yeah. Yep.
4: That sounds like more 19th century material or just a little before, huh? 1700s. Uh Uh, Caller, you are on the air. What's your name? Uh, my name is rob rob you're on mormonism live what do you think about the four solutions that rfm came up with uh probably in just an afternoon and elder holland's kind of struggling to figure this out
5: well i you know as they listen to it i mean i think that he's spot on in terms of the doctrine changing and all that you know just like what uh oak said was there's just so much that we don't know and yet i grew up in the church where like you guys were talking about earlier, is that it's about all the things that we do know. And it's like, how could anybody know this unless somebody told them this was true? And yet you find out that it was just, uh, well, that was their, their opinion, that's how they looked at it. And yet as a 58 year old member of the church that uh, uh, grew up in the church, served a mission in the church, It's almost like a church I wasn't even a member of. I feel like uh, the church has changed so much. So, you know, when you look at the LGBT community and say, well, what is life after death? What, you know, like how the spirits are not created. Well, the the reality of it is we just don't know. And I think that what R.F.M. said was spot on, which is, you know what, we don't know and and. God, when we get to the other side, He will sort it out, and, and God is good, and we know He'll work it out where it's right. So, you know, I think that um, uh, uh, just listening to it, this has been probably the best episode I've listened to since you guys started, because, you know, this notion that these are prophecies and revelators, and they know something more than we do, and yet you know, I see that we're. it seems like, I, maybe this is getting a little off point, but you know it's like it's almost forbidden to go back to joseph smith and listen to what he said because you know it's like it's like there was the church the restoration and what joseph Smith taught and then once he died umpteen number of things changed and it's almost like it's you can't say it's joseph smith's church anymore it's just the church of brigham young and so on and so on and, and so did joseph know it did brigham know it? you know like we all knew for 130 years God has, blacks can't have the priesthood. But lo and behold, now they can. And yet, none of this time was ever a revelation given. Oh, blacks got the priesthood. How did they get the priesthood reserved? It was by revelation. Do you see a revelation? No, they didn't publish a revelation. Kimball said the same thing in 78. Wilfred Woodruff got a a revelation that polygamy should end, except he never stopped living polygamy. And they kept doing it for multiple presidents afterwards, after uh, 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 Wilfred Woodruff. So what is, what is there anything in the church that is isn't constantly changing? And, and when you take the position of the LGBTQ today, which is they're real people, they're beautiful people, they're people just like us, and you know what? We don't know half as much as what we think we know, and that's true with the guys at the top, and it's true amongst us regular folks, and I think uh, R.F.M. That's um, I don't think he could have uh, laid it out any better in terms of what realistically uh, the church could do going forward. I mean, I could show you an article written back in the '60s where a gentleman wrote an article in the paper says, "You know, the church to be forced to to allow the blacks to have the priesthood. It's inevitable." Fifteen years later, they did. And yeah. and you know, the, if, when you take the notion like what Oak said tonight. There's just so much we don't know. Okay, so you don't know, we don't know, nobody knows. So why not take the high road and say, "Come into the church. There's a place for us. Where to hear that from? Oh yeah, uh, Elder Uthorpe. There's a place for everybody in this church. Yeah. Then let's take him
4: up the word. After thank enough. you, thank you, my I- friend. Thank you, Rob. He he makes another point, which we need to draw. Again, things that have changed. At one time, the church used to teach that the restoration was completed, and now the restoration is ongoing.
3: Absolutely. It's got to be ongoing because President Nelson has so many um, tweaks he wants to make to it.
4: What's the name, Caller? Backyard Professor. Oh, look at that. It is the Backyard Professor, Carrie Shirts. What do you think about uh, Radio Free Mormon solving the problem for the church if they would just be willing to grab it?
2: I think he hit it out of the ballpark. This is one of the best Mormonism live I have ever attended. You two just really put two and two together. I, I am impressed.
3: Well, that's yeah. saying something. Thank you, Carrie.
2: Thank you. I mean, it's just the way RFM takes the King Follett discourse and describes the step-by-step process of what Joseph Smith said and what it means just basically demonstrates that today's brethren in the church are just fishing. They haven't got a stinking clue.
4: They're not catching much either
2: they're not catching much. And, you know, you know, we're supposed to be guided by revelation. This would be, to me, a pretty important subject to know about. And the more we learn, the more they say, well, we just don't know. Or else, like Oakes does, he euphemisms it into utter stupidity. So, you know, there we have it.
4: Yeah, absolutely, my friend. Thank you.
2: Very good podcast. Very good Mormonism Live. And yes, you keep smiling about what I'm saying, RFM. And Bill, you rock, you two are my two new heroes. So thanks for everything. We appreciate all your hard work and all your goofiness and all your scholarship and cleverness and adroitness and revelation and second anointings and so on and so forth. Love it. Carry on, brethren. Thank you. Carry on. Carry shirts. Carry
3: yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much, Professor. Catch you in the backyard after the show.
4: Yeah, you can catch the Backyard Professor at backyardprofessor.org. And people had, had said he wasn't on iTunes yet. I think if you check, uh, the Backyard Professor podcast is on iTunes with the rest of Mormon discussions lineup. Um, let's take one more call. Caller, what uh, caller? What's your name? Charlie. 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 You're going to be our final caller for the night. You're on Mormonism Live. RFM has solved the problem. He he gave these guys four viable solutions when Elder Holland, all he had were tears and none. And uh, now we've got a chance to to put a real solution on this and to solve it and move on and uh, probably save some lives in the, in the meantime. Um, your thoughts?
5: Well, you know, I think they might work, of course. You know, I know it's kind of tongue-in-cheek what we're doing, but there's only one real solution, and that's you can't be a movement. Nobody can. It doesn't work whether you're white, black, red, um, gay, straight, lesbian, transgender, male, female. It just it's unsustainable and it doesn't work. And if people really want to be happy and have fulfilling lives. You just cannot follow these 15 old white dudes.
4: Well, I, I appreciate the call, my friend. Thank you. Yeah. It, it certainly works for those top 15, doesn't
3: it? It does. And I know that there's, uh, I mean, I have friends, two very good friends, one of whom was on the podcast to whom it works for, at least up to now. And I see no sign of it stopping. And I'm talking about uh, Ben McKay, of course. So uh, I know that many people feel that way. It certainly became unsustainable for me personally. And yet it does appear to be working for others. I think it's a diminishing number of others, but still they're there. And so, um, yeah. Uh, Once again, I am in favor of whatever works for you, whatever makes you happy, so long as it doesn't hurt anybody else, is uh, fine by me. You know, live and let live.
4: Yeah, and I'll tell you, my faith crisis, RFM, was deeply over the history. But I would have stayed, I think, forever if all the problems were historical. It was when I started to realize that people that were different than me mattered, and they had value just in the exact same way that I did And I learned to appreciate diversity and I realized the harm that Mormonism does to people who don't fit in the box to the extreme of costing people their lives. And what I would say is elder Holland, RFM has laid out um, four. and again, I I think the glass caller said, well, maybe tongue in cheek. I don't think so. I think your four solutions when they finally solve the problem, it will be one of those four that they utilize to fix it. And, and I say, look, I, I, I get angry too about this thing, but at the end of the day, let's just make life easier on people and not impose harm based on beliefs that just don't hold up or are constantly changing. Let's just move, let's fix it. Let's move on and let's be a better church.
3: Amen. Yeah.
4: Anything else from you, my friend?
3: No, I've said everything I have to say. I came up with these four solutions without shedding one tear, without incurring any scar tissue. And yet I think that they're out there and please, and seriously, because I know there are members of the church hierarchy who monitored this show. Please get this in front of the brethren. It doesn't have to be from us. It can be from some other more acceptable source. But get it in there. Let them kick it around the table and come up with one of these ideas or more than one of these ideas. Let's get this thing solved. Let's get it in the past. Let's enter into the 21st century. Do you think they'll give you credit? Oh, no, no. And I, I don't ask for it. Don't worry. I don't ask just, for it. Just fix it. Yes. Mormonism Live, better than touching your own little factory.